0: I feel like I've been completely used. I feel like my mind has been completely invaded. I had to be toilet I was a vegetable. I had no identity. I had no memory. I'd never existed in the world. I had lost all my Just like a baby's in myself. I suffered. I suffered like, you know. uh,
1: uh, Uh, My mother had
0: to stay with me all the time. She couldn't leave me one hour.
1: Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to STAT, shocking traumas and treatments. And we are your hosts Karen Wickham and Mary Gardner coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Hello one and all, welcome. So that was some of the victims of Ewan Dr. Ewan Cameron, using the word doctor lightly, from his how he inflicted upon them these horrific and cruel human experiments. And it's, we've all heard the words mind control, but this runs so much deeper than that. This is, these are tortures by um, an egomaniac psychopath on unsuspecting people, worse his patients. And they may sound like very strong words when I'm talking about this man, but you will see as we go along that they don't still quite cover the kind of monster that he is mm-hmm. let's get into it okay so who is this dude dr donald ewan cameron also known as ewan cameron from this point on was born in bridge of allen scotland the son of a presbyterian minister in 1925 he received his diploma in psychological medicine he was influenced by Adolf meyer and in 1926, he moved to the U.S. to work with Meyer at the Phipps Clinic in Johns Hopkins University. So why is it important that he worked under Meyer? Because Meyer was a, well, a very famous doctor, psychiatrist. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say,
0: I know that name for world
1: sure. World-renowned. Yeah, well, I've talked about him in other um, episodes, episodes before. Yeah. And the thing is that this guy, to sum it up as best I can, believed in... Um, a physiological effect on the mind. So there was a biological, physiological reason why a person would suffer from mental illness, along with other psychosocial um, reasons, other innate causes of the yeah, mind. Yeah, so
0: sort of a nature versus nurture. He believed that there was some, like, things that you were just born with, I guess?
1: Yeah, like it was an early sort of belief in that without getting into a, a whole biography of this guy so this we'll see how this plays out with dr cameron in 1928 he went to the burgolzi i think that's right the way i'm saying it, i'm not sure clinic in switzerland at the university of zurich and he studied under a dr hans w meyer M-E-I-E-R, as opposed to Adolf Meyer, who has a Y in his name. Just to clear that up. (laughs) That's crazy. There he met A.J. Mathers, the principal psychiatrist from Manitoba, Canada. In 1929, Mathers convinced Cameron to work as a psychiatrist at the Brandon Mental Hospital. He was in charge of admitting at the reception unit. And from 1929 to 1936 he worked there. He did some pretty incredible things that have changed the way psychiatry was seen and treated. Early on, he did some good. And it's, you know, this is what he did. He organized the structure of mental health services in Western Manitoba. So he started up 10 functioning clinics just to treat people with mental illness. And this model was used as a blueprint for the Allen Institute and the forerunner of the 1960s community health models. So, pretty amazing. And at the same time, he did clinical research and contributed to the scientific literature. In 1936, he moved to Massachusetts and was the director of research at Worcester State Hospital. And in 1939 to 1943, he was the professor of neurology and psychiatry at the Albany Medical College in Albany, New York. And at the Russell Sage School of Nursing. His study interests were the interrelationship between mind and body, biological and medical. And he wrote about schizophrenia, uh, the medical fields, understanding of it, and the treatments. He also did a lot of work in understanding psychotic syndromes caused by physical changes in the brain. So he took a biological approach to mental illness.
0: Okay, which was, which was Adolf Meyer's kind of early influence, influence in
1: okay. nature versus nature, that type of thing. But he leaned a little bit more into the biological causes of mental illness. At the same time, his papers reflect his lifelong enthusiasm for understanding the understanding of memory, how memory was formed, where in the brain does it occur, and what changes happen during this process and the biological reactions that allow us to recall memory. So again, this will play a key role in his future experiments. He also wanted to know what happens during aging and psychosis. So in 1936, he published his first book called Objective and Experimental Psychiatry. He believed that psychiatry should study human behavior scientifically. Um, the biological aspects, nature versus nurture, using the scientific method. In 1943, he moved to Montreal and worked uh, through McGill University on a grant from some major contributors, Rockefeller Foundation, money from the Montreal Star owner, and from Sir Hugh Allen. He gifted the university with a mansion on Mount Royal, And this is what transformed into the Allen Institute or the Allen Memorial Institute. And this is where all these horrors would take place. So over the next 20 years, he turned it into a world-class, cutting-edge psychiatric institute. He recruited psychiatrists, psychologists, social psychiatrists, and biologists from all around the world to work there. And that was kind of a first that you would see that you would see this multidisciplinary Group All under one roof, he was considered to be one of the best, most respected psychiatrists in the world at that time. He was so renowned that he was one of three North American psychiatrists invited to the Nuremberg trials to analyze Rudolf Hess, who was oh. the yeah, he was the deputy fuhrer, right, so Adolf brought him in exactly, and the things that he did or told people to do or gave permission to do were the worst you can imagine. When you're Hitler's right-hand man, you're in all of it. Mm -hmm. They were to question his sanity. Was he sane? Could he stand trial? So they deemed him sane. He stood trial. And he was given a life sentence. And uh, years later, he committed suicide. This next part just blows my mind. And you'll see why. Cameron goes from being someone with good intentions to becoming one of the people that he was disgusted with, that he was afraid of. He was greatly affected by all the atrocities he heard during the trials. He wrote papers emphasizing that the insanity that spread through Germany could not happen again. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's God
0: would hope if you were any kind of normal, decent person and you heard the the stuff that went on there that you would be like, yeah, we got to stop this from ever happening again.
1: Uh, Yeah. The trials exposed the deranged atrocities against the Jewish people by a nation who followed the lead of a madman. He preyed on their hate and fear and fanned the flames of ignorance and arrogance. And this is what Cameron started to do. So he wrote a paper called "Nuremberg and Its Significance." It was, in, I'm going to give you a little. It's ex, uh, excerpt from the paper. Okay. So the reasons that he that it for its significance is that it they needed to reestablish the justice of Europe, and they needed to confront the German people with the facts of the atrocities that committed during the war. And the revelations to the world that this had occurred. So we need to get it out there and we have to stop it from happening. And here's a quote from it. It is not simply against future conspiracies of evil men, which we have to guard against ourselves, but it's against weakness and faults in our own social order, in our own ways of living against which we have to be on continual guard. We need to destroy Deranged and outdated concepts of human relations before they could hurt society he was concerned that there were people of authority in all societies who spread misinformation. Uh, we've just been living through that ourselves <laughs> I was right say, how app pro <laughs> yeah, but if you think about what that misinformation has done to our society now, mm-hmm. all the ugliness and fear and horrible things that have come out of it yeah and it's spread even more
0: easily with
1: uh digital media and the internet hate crimes and it's just so we can see what can happen i mean there are other there are other you know examples of that but in our own recent world we can see that and this concern of his was that these very people could have access to nuclear weapons Mm -hmm. (laughs) He believed that the future lay in the knowledge gained by social and behavioral scientists who would be the ones who would be the architects of society. He believed in a united world and a united nation.
0: Okay, well, I mean, that's a pretty good thing, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. So So where did it all go wrong? (laughs) I'm getting to it. You'll see it's a slow progression, but you'll see it. Well, maybe not so slow. He believed the world was made up of the strong and the weak. That's it. You're either strong or you're weak. The weak were full of anxiety and insecurity, and they were dangerous because they could bring chaos to the society. They needed to be identified and their roles in society evaluated. The oh, strong... sounds was,
0: a little bit like eugenics Well,
1: <laughs> this is where I'm going. The strong were protectors of the uh, others from the weak, and they could not allow children to be influenced by the weak. So here we go. What happened in society, uh, if we're looking at the Nazis, was that they spread fear, and one culture was considered dangerous and weak, and the other were considered strong, and they needed to control that. So Cameron was thinking the same as, like, Hitler, fascism, authoritarian society. Even though it it's a concept at that point, you're going to see where this takes him. Hmm. It didn't, it, it, he didn't learn from Nuremberg. It influenced him to think this way and to repeat it. In 1942, he became an American citizen. In the late 1940s to early 1950s, he still continued to study memory and aging and then expanding those studies into anxiety, depression, and schizophrenia, social psychiatry. The rules of interpersonal interaction with family, community, culture, and the cause of emotional disturbance. He was the first psychiatrist to do these things as well, which was good. Day hospitals, psych units in general hospitals, um, studying the social and psychological causes of mental illness, nature versus nurture, and how to modify these behaviors and or environments. All so, right,
0: so we started out on a good path. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I never even thought about that, but day hospital like like day treatment like you you didn't have to be kept overnight. You could just go and get your treatment for your psychological issues, but you could still go home.
1: Yeah. And that you weren't just put on a general floor, that you had a unit specifically that um specialized in, in treating mental illness. Mm. So those are those are good things. Mm-hmm. Um, He believed in the biological factors, what caused severe psychopathology. Um, He did not like Freud at all, Mm -hmm. dismissed him. And can environment affect biology? Uh, Can changes happen in the brain because environment? We know that now 100% because of PTSD. Mm -hmm. Traumatic event happens, it changes your brain. He believed the role of psychiatrists should be driving social change. So psychiatrists should be in charge. And psychiatrists, psychologists, social scientists should control the narrative, therefore the citizens. So that's authoritarianism. Mm, And he used Germany as an example of why they should do this. If you've got the psychiatrists, social workers, you know, social scientists, etc. running the world... This shouldn't happen.
0: Oh, so he's saying that if that happened, then Germany wouldn't have happened? Like, yeah. Nazism and
1: stuff wouldn't yeah. have happened? If the only the psychiatrists and social workers and bi- social biologists, social scientists of the world controlled it, this stuff wouldn't happen. So then you would just have people that controlled minds controlling the world, which <laughs> is, yeah, exactly. Okay. So here's an excerpt from what I'm calling his scary manifesto that shows the genesis of his journey into the depths of mind control. Okay, here we go. Quote, We now recognize that the transmission to children and also to people at all ages and beliefs, attitudes and customs, which produce unnecessary anxiety, guilt, feelings of inadequacy and hostility, must come to an end as a matter of public health and individual well-being. We have recognized that many of these damaging ways of being are transmitted by parents who themselves suffer from them. We also recognize the part played by social institutions interested in the perpetuation themselves. End quote. And let's start another one here. All of us have seen the transmission down the generation of insecurities, chronic, chronic anxiety, frigidity, feelings of inadequacy, We have at present no means whatsoever of stopping this. It could be stopped, however, by remodeling and expanding our present concepts of suitability for marriage, of quarantine of individuals suffering from diseases likely to spread to others. End quote.
0: Okay, I have a furrowed brow. I I got lost there. So what, he's basically saying shouldn't let the mentally ill
1: reproduce? Yep, and quarantine them. Oh, Jesus. It needed, he saw this, that mental illness as like a infectious disease.
0: Or that it was, you know, inherently genetic or biological. So if those people reproduce, then the offspring will get it. All, all of the above. Yeah. All of the above. Okay.
1: Okay. So he believed that we need to predetermine who should have children and who should hold positions of authority. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. So he did a talk on dangerous men and women, and he believed in four personality traits that were a significant danger to society um, and their friends and colleagues and destructive to their children. Number one, passive personality type. He will stand anything and stands for nothing, were his words. The possessive type, jealousy and demand loyalty, danger to those closest to them, And their influence on children would be devastating. Three, the insecure man. Quote, they fear the stranger. They fear the new idea. They are afraid to live and scared to die. Science must contribute to changing the world in such a way as to release these weak people from fears that keep them so miserable. End quote. And the psychopath, who is the biggest threat. And his example were members of the Gestapo. And for him, those people fell under the category of the weak. Oh, interesting. His solution? Instead of having compassion and wanting to help people with mental illness, he you would think that both as a human and as a physician, he saw that he would want to do, like he'd want to help them, but instead he saw them as emotional cripples who needed to be removed from society. Mm -hmm. Quote, rapid ways of building up new attitude for social control without crippling guilt. Children have certain psychological rights to protection against indoctrination with damaging outmoded attitudes against the implantations and taboos and inhibitions by their parents. By the mid 1950s, Cameron became unbelievably powerful. Like, we're talking all-powerful. At the Allen Memorial Institute, he was one of the foremost psychiatric research and clinical doctors. He was professor of psychiatry at McGill University. He was psychiatrist-in-chief of the Royal Victoria Hospital. He was director of the Allen Memorial Institute of Psychiatry. He was president of the American Psychiatric Association, president of the Quebec Psychiatry Association, president of the Canadian uh, Psychiatric Association, president of the World Psychiatric Association, president of the American Psychopathological Association, and president of the Society of Biological Psychiatry.
0: Wow, that's a lot of things to be. What's left What's
1: left to be in charge of and to be president of.
0: Taking over the world.
1: Right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A colleague, uh, a lot of the colleagues that work with him aren't like want to be or wanted to be anonymous because of how powerful he was. And um, and also because they don't want to be associated to the things he did. So they would make quotes, but I don't want you to know that I was even associated with this dude. Okay, so this is one of their, uh, his colleague said, he didn't have the faintest notion of how to go about doing experiments or doing research, but he thought he did. He wasn't so much driven with wanting to know, he was driven with wanting to be important to make that breakthrough. It made him a bad scientist. He didn't believe in the scientific method because he felt it was too slow. But that's why it exists, right? I mean, the scientific method is there to make sure you
0: get the appropriate results and follow the right protocols.
1: Well, this is a perfect time, a perfect segue, <laughs> oh, <dang it>. um, <laughs> to talk about like the aspects of the scientific method. So, one, make an observation. Two, ask a question. Three, form a hypothesis or testable explanation. Four, make a prediction based on the hypothesis. Five. Test the prediction. Six, iterate. Use the results to make a new hypothesis or prediction if you did not achieve what your original prediction was. And eight was the result. Seven was the conclusion. And then you go through it all over again. Right. And you do it as many times as you need to to, you know, come to your conclusion, find your findings or prove your findings, or you you don't, you start something else.
0: Yeah, or you find a different
1: result. It's either achievable or it's not. And in order to figure that out, you have to, to t- do your tests and change things as you go along. And if you see, he possessed some of the same qualities of other evil scientists or crazy mm. doctors or however you <laughs> want to put it. Because he just felt like he was above the law. He right. was above the the rules and that he could just go ahead and do whatever he wanted. He was an exception because he was so brilliant. He had a profound need to be recognized by the world and his peers as a great doctor and scientist. He didn't want to be controlled by the scientific method. He called it bureaucratic nonsense. Remember when we talked about early on... Uh, the uh, human experiments on children, mm-hmm. how those doc- doctors were saying, oh, that was such a great time to experiment because we didn't have to follow any rules. It's the same idea and they were all horrific human beings as well. And this really doesn't work when you're a professor. He repeatedly cited his own work as evidence and rarely others. So here he is as a professor trying to teach students and the only works that he cite are his own. <laughs> Okay.
0: If that's not a sign of an egomaniac. (laughs) Yeah.
1: He never found fault in himself. He would suppress other colleagues and residents' papers. So if if they were in conflict to his or if they appeared to be better than his, especially if they would elevate their position, that they would be competition to him.
0: Hmm. Well, that sounds like massive insecurity on his part. Well, exactly. Or inferiority complex.
1: One of his colleagues said, quote, he was single minded in his pursuit of his own version of the truth. Right. His version. Exactly. He was described by people as being completely like he was cold. He was standoffish. He was arrogant, rude. Uh, He didn't attend any parties, any gatherings, any get togethers, and no one was allowed to go to his house. He was just completely at arm's length of everybody, but I mean, you know, again, that gives makes him all powerful, unreachable, and complete like unapproachable. Mm-hmm. It just created like a mystique about it. Yeah, himself. exactly. It's that whole um, yeah mystique, the whole El- elusive genius. <laughs> okay, that's that's good. that works. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now it's time to talk about the experiments he did. First, I want to quote something from the Hippocratic Oath before we move further. Okay. I will do no harm or injustice to them. Neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. It's the one of the biggest messages. Yeah.
0: Do no harm, right?
1: Oaths is, is in that couple of lines right there. Mm-hmm. And he didn't care about the doctor-patient relationship at all.
0: He probably cared more about the money and the prestige.
1: Well, I think even the prestige over the money. Yeah, probably.
0: If he had that much of an ego insecurity thing going on.
1: And just to, you know, go over it quickly once again, he was interested in biological psychiatry. He believed that mental illness was in part caused by physical dysfunction Therefore, their treatments would involve surgical, chemical, or electrical methods, or any combination of them. Yikes. Initially, these physical treatments were most often used in conjunction with psychotherapy early on. His experiments utilized the use of all four methods. They were done so in a cruel and traumatic and deranged manner that caused permanent damage, disability, and sometimes death to his unknowing patients. And in one case, a colleague. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the late 1930s and the early 1940s, there was a dramatic move towards treating patients by chemical, physical, and mechanical ways by working directly on the brain. So a physical example would be cold and hot baths and wrapping the patients in wet sheets. And as they dried, they were, would tighten on, around their body. Insulin shock treatment, ECT, lobotomy, metrazole, things like that. Mm-hmm. Chemical, mescaline, cocaine, benzodrine, alcohol, sodium amytol, though which is a true serum, mm-hmm. um, caffeine, and then later LSD and Thorazine.
0: Hmm.
1: As we moved into the late 40s, early 50s, ECT was used to cause convulsion as opposed to insulin therapy. Let's just put them into insulin shock and <laughs> they'll seize and then we'll, you know, get them fixed up again. Yeah. I remember that basically one. <sighs> throwing their complete, uh,
0: so dangerous endocrine
1: system out of whack. So this was the new quote unquote prescription for doing ECT. So they would start with 70 to 130 volts That would last between 0.1 to 0.5 seconds long. If the first one did not cause a seizure, the voltage would be a little higher and the shock would be a little longer. Going into the 1950s, psychiatry was going in a different direction. That's when we started to see that they were moving away from psychoanalysis. And it was still quite popular, but they were slowly moving into more, like I said, physical and chemical ways of treating people. And drugs like chlorpromazine, also known as Thorazine, were given to the patient. It was the chemical um, lobotomy that they, they called it. And that was a Thorazine's an antipsychotic drug. Okay. And so it, like it, it affected the frontal lobe? Uh, it just, it helped with, it was an antipsychotic. I don't know exactly in the brain where it helped it, but basically it took someone with schizophrenia, bipolar, uh, severe behavior problems, and it helped... Basically, calm them down, okay, help to slow down their mind and help with hallucinations, that kind of thing. So, they started to use thorazine, and eventually, this stopped lobotomies from happening, even though Walter Freeman did his very best to keep them going as long as he possibly could. With
0: the lobotomy wagon, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> or bus, or whatever the hell it was, yeah, in
1: 1948 a new type of ECT was being used or a new type of ECT treatment. So we talked about the 70, 130 volts, 0.1 to 0.5 seconds, that type of thing. This new treatment was developed by psychiatrists L.E.M. Page and R.J. Russell. So the treatment was called the Page Russell ECT. And it was an intensive form of ECT. So this is how that went. They'd start with 150 volts for one second. Followed by five more shocks at a hundred volts for the initial convulsion, and they would do this one to two times a day and they said they did it only for schizophrenia, psychotic depression, and paranoid psychosis by nineteen fifty three though they had increased their treatment to this they would do the first as we said, you know one fifty five shocks, one to two times a day, and then they started in, uh, for a secondary convulsion, they would do that five to seven times to up to eight to 15 times. I'm talking about shocks. Hmm. So where you would have one to two a day that you are now getting anywhere from five to 15 times a day. Hmm. That seems like a lot. Yeah. Not meaning that you would go back to the place five to 15 times. It means that they would shock you at any given time that much. About 3,500 patients had this over five years so, they followed a flawed and dangerous theory that more is better. Mm-hmm. Okay. They also believed that the patients they were treating were so hopeless that they had nothing to lose. So, we might as well just shock the fuck out of them and see what happens. Guinea pigs, human guinea pigs. But instead of helping the patients, they were actually regressing them. Mm. Too much. See, more is not always better. Yeah. If one doctor scientist is going to do something you're going to find another one that's going to do it more or differently the practice was being used and developed widely across psychiatric hospitals and it started to get more and more intensive a lot of hospitals were doing between 28 to 65 shocks a day over three times a day what To like a single person? Yes. So 28 to 65 shocks three times a day. And they would do this for seven to 10 days straight.
0: So wait, you get 28 divided into
1: three? 28 or 65 divided into three. So morning, you might get 25, afternoon, 30, dinner time, 10. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's how it, it could break up. And that would be a week to 10 days straight.
0: Could be like a drooling vegetable. Well, this is what would
1: happen. The patient would become confused, disoriented, no memory, almost catatonic, slurred speech, incontinence times two, unable wow. to swallow, needing a G-tube to eat. They had infantile reflexes found normally in infants. So the Babinski reflex, hmm. the Babinski is the extreme startle reaction. Mm-hmm. And the, the foot has a dorsal flexion of the big toe, as opposed mm-hmm. to we are, our foot will move in downwards. This causes your, your foot and your toes to yeah, go upwards. Yeah. And in babies, that's normal. Right. But in adults, it serious brain damage has happened. Yeah. So once those symptoms reverted back to normal, as normal as they could, um, it was said that there was a positive improvement in mood overall, although they suffered permanent amnesia for up to three months before the treatment. So they'd lose everything in their life that happened up to three months or longer.
0: Mm, wow. And the
1: last result of this didn't work was the lobotomy. Mm-hmm. Good old Walter Freeman. In 1955... One of the doctors that worked out of the Allen had employed the sleep treatment. Patients were given a mixture of Thorazine and Barbiturates. So Barbiturates are depressant drugs, anti-anxiety, hypnotic, sleeping pills, and used for as anticonvulsants. They're highly addictive and have a high chance of overdose. And they were often used recreationally. So here's a sleep treatment patients would sleep 20 to 22 hours a day for weeks sometimes months
0: is that even
1: healthy i mean that doesn't seem right at all that's what they did you get bed sores and shit wouldn't you yeah just imagine how like danger blood clots <laughs> okay I'm shaking my head so while these treatments were being used you and cameron was formulating his own ideas for treatments that could change behaviors. He didn't like psychoanalysis, like I said. He felt it took too long and was not very effective. He was impatient, Uh and he was looking for a quick and permanent fix. However, psychoanalysis did work with many people, and this approach showed that the neural pathways could be changed, that you could, in fact, actually help people. So as much as he hated it, he used the success from it to build on his whatever uh, torture method uh, that he would come up with. Here's a clip. I think it's a good place to play it. It's one of his ex colleagues talking about uh, the kind of person he was.
0: He was uh, an authoritarian, ruthless, power hungry, nervous, tense, angry, Man, not very nice. As you probably know, uh, electroshock treatment has been given for depression for something like 40 years now. It's a very successful and uh, useful treatment for severe depression that doesn't respond to other things. But de-patterning is a use of electroshock treatment in a totally different way, in which instead of giving the shocks, say, two or three times a week, uh, they're given two or three times a day for three or four weeks, reducing the patient to a sort of animal-vegetable state from which it's hoped that they would recover in a a more healthy state of mind. It didn't work.
1: So you can tell he he really liked uh, Cameron.
0: (laughs) So that was a guy that worked with him?
1: Yeah, that that was someone that worked with him. And I love the fact that he has no qualms in saying who he was. Mm Mm-hmm. So taking psychoanalysis his question came his thesis his hypothesis was could a patient's neurological pathways and behavioral patterns be erased and new ones put in their place and could he use ECT pharmaceuticals and sleep treatments all together at once to strip a person down to base level
0: I.e., vegetable. Yeah.
1: Really, right? So, this led to depatterning. And this became a huge part of his treatment, which was really just a human experiment. So, he believed that a person could be made patternless, given a clean slate, erasing memories taken back to a point of infancy, and then rebuild the patient with a whole new set of behavioral patterns, healthy ones, as he thought. Mm -hmm. He could just put in their mind whatever he felt a person should be. So going back to this, the weak and the strong, and just how frightening is that? Let's strip your mind to nothing, and I'm going to decide... What you should be thinking, yeah, how you should be. That's scary. So, this was the basis of all Cameron's experiments and atrocities he committed against these unsuspecting patients. He was developing a technique called psychic driving. So, what you would want to do is de pattern a patient, and then psychic driving was putting messages in the place of their previous thinking on this blank slate. Patients were often given strong psychoactive drugs, barbiturates, LSD, and Thorazine, along with the ECT to strip their minds down. and Because more
0: is better, apparently.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so psychic driving involved forcing a patient to listen to taped messages played on a loop. Some patients listen to, and I know you're not going to believe me, from anywhere from a quarter to half a million messages over their treatment time. What? Because it was played on a loop over and over again for twenty to twenty-two hours a day for months. That just seems horrifying. Yeah. Cruel, so,
0: um, unnecessary. Well, this is what how. What other words would you like me to use?
1: Well, I mean there there's a whole half a dictionary you could choose. Um so Yikes. there were two forms. There were auto psychic driving in which the patient would listen to their own voice over and over again. And what they were would listen to was them saying the things that were bothering them and then so that would be negative. Driving negative messages and then doing positive messages for the other half of the time, saying who they wanted to be and how they wanted to be, how they want to live. And the second type was heteropsychic driving, they would listen to messages developed from uh, psychoanalysis or in, interpreted by psychiatrists, psychologists, etc., to pierce through the patient's psychological barricades, to tease out their psychological struggles and the feelings that they kept hidden deep down to themselves and Cameron would place a dynamic implant that would cause the patient to continue to reveal their inner thoughts. So part of the message was to get them to reveal more. So if their message was, tell me more, tell me more, open your mind, like that kind of thing. Hmm. Okay. So initially this would be, 30 minutes once a week, they would do this. Okay, well, that's not bad. Then they dramatically increased the exposure and frequency. And I'm not talking, oh, let's do 30 minutes twice a week. It got out of control fast. And they were looking to find better ways of delivering the messages um, and how the patients could be set up to receive them okay um maybe we should stop for a second and you should uh go get some bungee cords or something to strap yourself in because this you're not going to believe this oh no honestly uh, you guys i i think that uh this is where it gets really bad yeah this is this is to me it overwhelmed my brain i read this over and over and over and it okay this must have been when you were going
0: I can't believe this. I can't believe
1: <laughs> And it. then I'd look at another place to read it, and I'd be like, no, they're still saying the same thing. <laughs> and I'd watch this video, and they'd still be saying the th- oh, same boy. thing. So I'm like, okay, so here okay. we go. Lay it on me. The patient would be in a hospital room, in a bed, with a pillow microphone. So a pillow with a microphone in it, and a ceiling microphone just above them. So a microphone like speaker that would pump uh these these messages through. The messages would be played alternatively at a high volume, low volume, different voices, different styles and role playing. And this would disinhibit his patients to lower their defenses so they would be able to absorb the information more. They would be given sodium ametol, which is also known as the truth serum. Oh yeah, right. And amphetamines.
0: So they'll stay awake.
1: Yeah. But be right out of it. And then prolonged sleep with psychic driving messages initially for 10 to 12 hours a day for 5 to 10 days. The patient would be in a prolonged state of psychological isolation. They would be in a dark room. Their eyes would be covered with dark goggles so that they couldn't see. And when they were not getting the psychic driving, their ears would be covered with noise-canceling headphones. Their arms would be placed in tubes so that they couldn't touch their own body. And then they were given LSD while in this state. But they didn't know that they were getting LSD. Wait,
0: what? Their arms were in tubes?
1: Yeah, like if you can imagine like Christmas. What, it like
0: the cone of shame but for your arms or something for crying out loud?
1: <laughs> I guess So they
0: couldn't take the headphones off or something. They couldn't too. move. It was
1: like from their armpit down to past their wrist. So if you can imagine basically your arms being in a cast that you could move. You know, like the Christmas paper wrapping paper yeah. tubes we will take them and make the diameter big enough to fit your arms into. So they couldn't touch themselves. So they couldn't hear. They couldn't see. And they couldn't move and they couldn't touch their body. Mm-hmm. You have no reference for. So you've
0: got sensory deprivation. Yeah. And then in the dark extreme. room
1: on top of it. Oh, God. And nobody around you, except for when a nurse would come in and out. And the people would lose it. They did studies. on, And and,
0: they're on LSD, but they don't know they're on LSD. That,
1: to me, is the most terrifying thing I can think of. That if someone dosed me and I didn't know it, and I started completely tripping out and didn't know why. Like, there's one thing to know why. Right. To say, okay, this is what's going to happen. Even if someone did it and said to you, haha, I did this to you, you're like okay, so whatever's going to happen to me from this point on, is going to happen because of this, and it will eventually stop. While you're losing it, like we talked about, those poor men, the hooded men, who were given LSD, with these hoods on their heads, put in a uh, beaten and put in sensory um, uh, isolation deprivation. Like, I, I I think that that's that's a incredibly.
0: Uh, and this is the kind of shit that they do now, probably still. I'm mean, I'm sure the Americans do it too.
1: Oh, this happens in, uh, yeah, in different places in the world still. So what did the reaction did these patients have to this? Well, they would fight the procedure. They would defend themselves by trying to block out the message. And some of them just couldn't. And they would go into a deep state of psychosis. Yeah. I wonder why. So that's, that's bad, right? That's fucked. Well, it gets way worse than that. Because he was... He was disappointed that he really didn't get the results that he wanted. He wrote a paper stating that he needed to find a better way to drive in the message. So he stepped it up. Oh, God. Okay, now what? The headphones would now pipe in the sounds, okay? So instead of it being all around them, it was going directly into their ear and they could control the volume and now you're hearing voices like that are like directly into your head.
0: I can't even imagine being on LSD and then like in that state and then these messages like I, you'd be so fucked. Yeah. There's no other way to say it. Sorry for my profanity.
1: The, um, the voices would be male, female, loud, quiet, stern, gentle, And there would be like, you know, some weird ambient sounds mixed in with their, with them. And like I said, they would, um, this one woman had the following that I'm going to write here for 151 days straight. Wait, what a minute. How
0: how the hell do they go to the bathroom or eat and shit? Well,
1: let's break it down here. They would play the same message over and over for 16 hours a day up to 20 hours a day for 20 to 30 days straight for that one woman up to a, that was 151 days straight. They were given PCP, which is angel dust. And let's just go over what it does. It's uh, puts you in a dissociative state. It causes hallucinations, distorted perceptions of sounds, violent behavior, suicidal ideation, and flashbacks. Um, they were also given on top of that, Thorazine, the antipsychotic, And the side effects of Thorazine are terrible. So they're already in this state. It's possible that they could have severe muscle spasms to the point where they're like arching their back and their heads, uh, their eyes are rolled back in their head. Um, Drooling. Trouble swallowing. So they would have to have an NG tube put in so they could be fed that way. Uh, A nasal gastric tube fed into their stomach. And agitation, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, dizziness. And if they were still fighting it, they would receive many rounds of the Page Russell ECT after. Wow.
0: I that's her, horrific doesn't even cover it. It's it's horrifying, but it's I can't even imagine these people with their brains would be just piles of jelly like like i often think like psychological torture is way worse than physical stuff right i mean people say that oftentimes who've suffered abuse that the psychological the words and stuff were worse than the the hits or whatever cuz you could heal a broken bone or a bruise but how do you heal a brain
1: yeah i mean yeah and then you're subjected to that. Like, oh, my God. It's too much to take in, even. Like, like I said, are you ready? Because it, are you ready for it to get worse now? <laughs> no, seriously? The patients receiving this did not have severe mental illness. Most of the people that went in there had, you know, some anxiety and depression. And they could have, at the time for the treatments, just received some. Um, psychoanalysis and maybe maybe ect if they needed a little bit of that and maybe some of the medications that that had come out but these were not severely mentally ill people and it didn't matter no human being regardless of their state should have been victimized
0: to that degree so so it wasn't even the really ill like psychotic people or people with severe schizophrenia was doing this he was doing this to people who came in because they had
1: generalized anxiety yeah that is so messed up, or something more mild, right? Right. So Cameron did not critique his own experiments. He felt that what he was doing was ga- uh, was groundbreaking and successful, and that brain damage wa- that happened that occurred was just a mild uh, side effect to his success.
0: Because brain damage is just a mild side <laughs> effect, just a little bit, just a little bit of brain
1: little won't damage. hurt you. No problems there. So he continued to increase the intensity of his treatments to garner even more positive results.
0: But he wasn't getting, but was he getting positive results? Like he wasn't even using that scientific method
1: well, thing Well, in to his own evaluate. brain, it was getting him to where he wanted to be. And he was a psychopath. Oh, like he just, God. he basically wanted to wipe a mind and replace it with what he thought was best. Re- at, at, regardless who of who was he to decide that? He was crazy. He was a psychopath. I mean, psychopaths aren't even crazy this this was a megalomaniac narcissistic psychopath who started off with relatively decent intentions but he was just a fearful fearful okay look i'm going off here let's okay. let's carry on <laughs> back on the back on the tri- back yeah. on the tracks yeah. yeah so cameron did not like i said c- critique his own experiments and he can, he wanted to build a new personality so here's a quote from him obviously what has been achieved with respect to psychoneurotic patients can be extended to any field in which there is a malfunction of personality, whether within the area of psychiatry or not. He just said, we could do this to anybody. And that's what he did. Brainwashing, literally washing the brain.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess that's where the term comes from, right?
1: He had become what he feared the most. that Menace that psychopath that,
0: but he he didn't see it that way, obviously. No, he thought he was the savior.
1: Yeah, so I talked about depatterning before what he would do. So he, like, so he added a new element to his experiments. The depatterning, but it was a new iteration of the depatterning. Depatterning, oh so it wasn't just so how how he, how it was done before. How he was doing it now was more messed up. He wanted to destroy the prolonged destructive patterns of behavior. Give a patient a clean slate. That was like, that was his gift to them. Give you a clean slate. We'll wipe your minds. You won't remember anything, and you can have a fresh start. In order to have a fresh start, don't you need to remember from where you came from, what you've learned from it? I would think so. Okay, so let's talk about his new way of depatterning. There were three stages: the patient would lose track of time and space; there would be a massive uh, disturbance in memory, and they would reduce them to an infantile state. So that was the three, three states. So sleep. 20 to 22 hours a day. Given a daily dosage of Thorazine and barbiturates like Phenobarbital, the patient was awakened three times a day for meals and going to the bathroom. The first week they got solid food and the next week they were given semi-solid food with insulin. After 10 days of sleep, they would go And have the page Russell ECT, the most extreme form of it, for 30 to 60 days. After 30 progressive intensive rounds of ECT, after 30 days of ECT that progressed as the days went on up to 60 days, The patients would receive anywhere from 23 to 150 shocks. A day? I think in that period of time. Oh, okay. In that, sorry, in that stage. Okay, that phase. For the next 60 days. for, For the next 30 days. They would just be so like every day. That would be like jelly. getting like a couple shocks every day, up to 150 in total. So, over 30 days, which would be their
0: brain would be yeah.
1: mush. If now, not, no wonder
0: that woman, one woman, like in the quote when she said like she was like a baby, or yeah, like, or whatever.
1: So if not fully depatterned, so they're mind wiped. The patient would continue to be moved back and forth between these stages and st- until they achieved the desired effect. Taken down to an infantile level and their brain wiped. So if you didn't get through this, they start again with the sleep and the drugs and eating and the insulin, back to the shock treatments and over and over again until he was happy with uh, oh, the results.
0: I think I'd rather have a lobotomy by then.
1: How about none of this? Yeah. <laughs> Some compassionate treatment. But I know what you mean. So here's a quote from his notes about the treatments, the depatterning that he was doing at the time. <laughs> Great. Let's see
0: what the psycho had to say.
1: Quote During this stage, the patient may show a loss of a second language or all knowledge of his marital status and If he had children, he may be unable to walk without support, to feed himself, and may show double incontinence. All schizophrenic symptomology is absent. His communications are brief and rarely spontaneous. His replies to questions are in no way conditioned by recollections from the past or by anticipations of the future. He is completely free from all emotional disturbance save for the customary mild euphoria. He lives, as it were, in a very narrow segment of time and space. End quote.
0: Uh, wow. I, I don't even know what to
1: say to that. I just... When patients were not depatterned, as he wished, he justified this to say that the brain had surplus capacities that take over, like an override. And that a, the brain had a switcher device which aided the patients in resisting psychic driving. Basically, if you could fight off the depatterning in psychic driving, in other words, you were using whatever coping mechanisms that you had in an appropriate manner to fight off an attack on the brain and body, you were resisting. He felt that they were intentional attempts to piss him off. They were doing it on purpose, so he was making up new shit to justify what that his stuff that he was doing wasn't working. Right, other than the fact that it was just cruel and
0: inhumane vicious, and the body was the person's brain was trying to protect themselves like I. Uh,
1: He was a petulant, vindictive little psychopath. You know, you're not responding to basically me killing your brain. So you're doing it on purpose. And and how dare you? Torturing you. Uh, And this is the icing on the cake. Oh, God. Patients that were able to resist were put in foster care.
0: What do you mean they were put in foster care?
1: They were moved from their disturbed family environments that contribute to their negative behavior and were placed in foster homes for three months after discharge. They're not children. Of course they are. If what, it uh, didn't work, they would make them live with other people.
0: But, but Be cared were
1: adult, for. Adults, weren't they? Yes. <laughs> so
0: why the hell would he put them in foster care? How could you even do that legally?
1: People didn't question. People, they would say that if you don't go, we're sending the police after you and we're bringing you back to the hospital to start the treatment again. So the people would go, okay, I'll go. And even at that point, their brain was so like mush that it was hard for them to resist. Holy shit. So Cameron continued on with other work while he was doing this. He wanted to find a better way, the best way for sensory deprivation.
0: Well, so, don't forget the CIA was, you know.
1: Well, I'll I'll sum this up at that's <laughs> how they were involved at the end. So um Rotten
0: all his dirty details yeah, his deeds.
1: Um so he he wanted to improve separate uh, like ways of of putting people into sem- uh sensory deprivation. Because that was part of all of this that he was doing, right? So he's got to improve on the individual elements of it. So um, initially, patients were kept in full isolation, as I explained earlier, for one to seven days. And then he increased it to 16 to 30 days. So there you go. And then the patients were not told when it would end because he's like, if they knew, then they would keep asking. But if they didn't know, they would just, you know, live with the fact that this is what their life was. Then he added PCP to it to achieve apathy, anxiety, depersonalization, thought disorder, disorganization, hallucinations, paranoia and catatonia. And then third he would further reduce their activity and depattern them. And then he would use ECT way even worse than the page russell. And then he would give them curare, which is a poison That is used by, in the Amazon, by the indigenous people of the Amazon, they'd put it on the end of their arrows and it paralyzes you. Okay. So he would give this to them. So they couldn't move. You're
0: you're conscious still.
1: Well, as conscious as you can be on PCP (laughs) in full isolation. It's like, well, with tubes on your arms, (laughs) if you're going to hallucinate and start tripping out, well, then we're going to paralyze you. But they were the ones giving them the drugs that were making them trip out. Well, because they had to counteract the drug, right? Oh, this is let so messed the, up. Let's take some Advil for our headache, but it may upset our stomach, so let's take some antacids for the stomach, for the headache. For, do you know what I mean? It's sort of like... um, And then... <laughs> oh, wait. There's another part? And then what? This is... <laughs> I'm just going to say it he put them under heat lamps <laughs> from the from the kitchen. they would slide them under the heat lamps in order to keep food warm.
0: Yeah, okay, so like the infrared kind of yeah lamps he, he, or he thought
1: that that would help the, the situation as well. Paralyzed under heat lamps. <laughs> That's just so messed up.
0: like unbelievable. yeah, how is this guy
1: not prosecuted? Because it would expose everything. But I mean, how was something done later on? Well, Cameron's experiments were funded by the CIA from 1957 to 1964. In 1956, it came to the attention of the CIA via his paper in the American Journal of Psychiatry about psychic driving. And there was a study group in the CIA called the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology. Uh, Colonel like human, Jam- human what ecology, ecology, human ecology.
0: Okay.
1: Um, Colonel James Monroe was the executive secretary. He saw this and he's like, "Ah, we need we need this guy on our team." So they made a project called MK Ultra, which was okay. led by Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. Who we'll be talking about next. Okay. And basically he was the one that developed MK Ultra, the mind control. So they saw his paper and they're like, Okay, let's collab with him. So they paid him sixty nine thousand dollars, which is seven hundred and fifty thousand in our time now.
0: Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say.
1: And they did further funding of five hundred thousand, which is five million three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in our time. That's a lot. Yeah. And then our country, Canada Contributed ten thousand, which is one hundred and two thousand bucks. We were right there, all all in like a dirty shirt as well. Jeez. In nineteen sixty four, he left the Allen to go to Albany as director of psychiatry and aging research, a laboratory at the Veterans Administration Hospital, and at the Albany Medical College. Oh, great! So
0: (laughs) sick him on old people now. That's the whole thing. So they sick him on old people. More terrifying.
1: Yeah, and he died of a heart attack in 1967. He was 66 years old. Mm, good riddance. Yep.
0: Well, maybe I shouldn't say that, but...
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I'll say it. Okay. So that's that's the story of Dr. Ewan Cameron and the horrors uh, inflicted upon these four unsuspecting, uh, trusting patients of his. Now this this episode has gone on quite long and I wanted to talk about the victims and honor the victims and give them a voice mm-hmm. to what happened. But I I'm, I think that this episode is long enough. Yeah. Okay. So it I, makes... I would just want to talk about and give a voice to the victims of Dr. Ewan Cameron uh, from the Allen Institute and uh, it was funded by the CIA. So therefore the CIA as well and our government and so that's where I'm going to leave this today.
0: Okay. Well, my brain's
1: ready to explode, I think. I've been working on this.
0: <laughs> Forget about me. You're the
1: one who had to do all the research. For a week straight of sitting at the desk. I know you have been working really hard. I'm bald in places.
0: <laughs> Pulling out your hair. Yeah.
1: Okay. I want to end on an awesomely positive note. Let's Let's, let's do that. I want to thank Jess MCN for giving me such giving us such an amazing review on iTunes. Aww. Thank you, thank you, thank you,
0: thank heart you. Making the making the heart thingy with your fingers.
1: <laughs> I'm making that right now. <laughs> thank you. Mary loves it. Thank you very much, uh Jess. And I also want to thank Kitty Cat eighty one for becoming our newest Patreon supporter.
0: Meow, thank you. <laughs> oh my
1: goodness. That was that was thank you and cat. Oh my, I think that uh this this episode has been too much for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I might need some depatterning patterning after this. Who knows? Oh, all right. Let's get uh, started. <laughs> uh no. no so no. thank you for everybody that listens to the show. Thank you for Patreon supporters, listeners, Facebook group participants. Thank you all so very much. Mm-hmm. We appreciate it. And uh just wanna say to make sure that you take care of yourselves take care of each other, love each other, and most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love.